0: everyone, and welcome to The Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we'll be stepping into the old Wes Andersonian time machine to sort of a pseudo-imaginary time. Back when journalists uh, were once celebrated and magazines were still very much in demand. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Today we'll be discussing The French Dispatch, the acclaimed Atour's latest big screen film. And I'm so thrilled today because we're joined by a first-time guest here on The Cinematic Schematic. I'm thrilled to welcome Jeff Houston from I Can't Unsee That Movie and also the president of the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle. Jeff, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic.
1: Caleb, it's great to be here, and it's certainly wonderful to be making my debut with Wes Anderson.
0: Absolutely. Well, Jeff, whenever it comes to Wes Anderson, I kind of noticed I've been following you online here for a few years now, and uh, you, you definitely gravitate towards the auteurs, and uh, I threw a couple of options out there for you, and you said, Wes Anderson, you, you got me.
1: Absolutely. All right, listeners.
0: Well, before we get into today's review discussion, I did want to quickly note that if you are listening to the show today and you enjoyed the conversation between Jeff and myself, I hope you'll consider supporting the show by subscribing to the cinematic schematic on your preferred podcast app uh, and leaving us a rating and a review, uh, preferably if you're on Apple podcast in particular, uh, that rating and review really helps us get discovered by more listeners just like you. Now with that said, let's uh, let's get to know today's special guest a little bit before we really jump into the the meat and potatoes of the discussion. So, Jeff, I'm going to start out with a little icebreaker question. I always like to uh, sort of give listeners a, a little perspective into what your your tastes are. The icebreaker question I have prepared today: You're taken to a mall that is filled with only Wes Anderson-approved items. Now, this includes outfits, props, vehicles, maybe even weapons you can pick anything that you you feel like would fit into a Wes Anderson sort of film. So what two items would you choose to buy?
1: Well, as someone who I wouldn't even know where to start with props and Wes Anderson, I mean, there, it's literally infinite when you think about just, I mean, every shot almost, you know, to some degree is packed with props and it's just that you could even, where would you start even in one frame? So I will go with, Uh, an outfit and a vehicle, and my outfit, it's a close call, but I will take a Team Zizou uniform just barely over a Rushmore school uniform. (laughs) And then for my vehicle, I will take the car that Owen Wilson drives in the Royal Tenenbaums, the 1964 Austin Healey 3000 Series 3, this little roadster that is just really slick-looking, almost looks like a Bond vehicle in some ways, but more of a, a twee version of a Bond vehicle, perhaps. But yeah, so it would be a Team Zisa uniform and the car that Owen Wilson drives in bombs the 1964 Austin Healey 3000.
0: And just out of curiosity, what drew you to those two
1: particular items? It's the first thing I think of. It's the you know the first thing that popped into my mind. I'm just so fascinated with all the varieties of clothes and costuming that Appear in Wes Anderson films, and Zisu is one of the most distinct ones. And then, yeah, just that—I just always thought that car in particular in Tenet Bombs was really cool, and it's something I think of instantly when I think of Tenet Bombs. And um, I just like that car.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, I can't fault you on the car. It's a pretty, pretty neat, nifty little vehicle. Myself, I, I will actually be taking a pair of skis as seen it's in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Why? Yes. Because I feel like I'm probably horribly inept at skiing, but they make it look so easy in the film. The way they're zigzagging up and down the, and around the mountain, running away from uh, Willem Dafoe. That's, that's uh, one of my very favorite Wes Anderson uh, chase sequences.
1: Yeah, they're inherently adept at skiing, so if you're not a skier, maybe it just helps you come more naturally to it.
0: I mean, I feel like it would help me come as naturally as it does to the characters, right? <laughs> right, so, right. Just pick it up and go. And then the other item I would have is the one of the scout hats from uh, Moonrise Kingdom. I mm-hmm. really enjoyed the whole kind of a uh, boy scout kind of pack mentality that they had there. And, uh, you know, Edward Norton being at the, at the helm of that group, uh, I just would like to really have that for, a, for an empty little Halloween costume sometime. And, uh, and actually fun fact, uh, Moonrise Kingdom was my, uh, actually my first Wes Anderson film. So I, I went and explored his entire catalog after seeing that film. Hmm. Uh, gosh, what is it? Eight, eight or so years ago, seven or yeah. eight years ago now. Mm-hmm. Those are my two selections.
1: Well, that's a great entry point for Wes Anderson, for somebody who hasn't seen one of his films before. That's a, that's a great one to start with.
0: Those coming of age stories, they go a long way. They do. They do. And getting people pulled in. But uh, listeners, uh, if you enjoyed that little snippet there, uh, what is your favorite Wes Anderson thing? If you could walk into that Wes Anderson store and pick out any two items, it could be something from one of his films or or an item that you would imagine in one of his films. uh, You can uh, let us know by hitting us up on Twitter at the Cinematrop. Uh, or going over to Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Cinematropolis and dropping us a comment or message. Uh, we can always uh, send your email answers to us at Cinematropolis at gmail.com. Now that you know a little bit more about Jeff and I's taste in Wes Anderson, let's go ahead and get to our review of The French Dispatch. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer, Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, <laughs> The arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest.
1: You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time Berenson, Sazarek, Kremenz, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose.
0: According to IMDb, the French Dispatch is described as a love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine. Uh, so again, we are actually going to be having a spoiler-free review before we get to a more in-depth spoiler section here. Uh, so let's gonna start with those spoiler-free reactions. Now, Jeff, let's get a little more context here on on exactly your relationship is for Wes Anderson. Obviously, you're, you're, you're quite the fan. What would you say is your take on Wes Anderson as a director overall?
1: Overall, I mean, he's, he's so singular. There's nobody else like him. A, a little bit later, I, I will be discussing, you know, some of his influences and giving reference to those. But even when you consider the influences uh, and filmmakers that have influenced his style, he's still made it very singularly his own. And so when you go into a Wes Anderson movie, you know you're not only going into something that you're not going to see anywhere else, but you know exactly the kind of world you're walking into and that you're entering. And there are some who don't have uh, patience for that, right? They can only take so much. And I'm not one of those people. I can't get enough. So, and I, in particular, am just grateful that He is somebody that leans into, doubles down on exactly what his aesthetic is. He doesn't make apologies for it. If anything, he just keeps going deeper and deeper and making it more dense and more dense with each film. And for anybody that, and you know, you can read them, people who criticize him and think that either he's too self-indulgent, he needs to be reined in a little bit. I couldn't disagree more. I mean, Wes Anderson is the kind of filmmaker that. I don't want to put any reins on him. Um, I think he's because he's so self-assured and so confident in that aesthetic that he plays in and that he's developed and that and, and that has grown with each film. And so I don't want him to be reined in. I want him to be free to be the the in fact, I don't even want him to try something different. Now, if he wants to at some point at some point in his career, he says, you know, I want to try something different than, hey, go be an artist and do that. But if he wants to stay in this world, and what's great about this world that he's in, it's not that he it's only one singular world. It's like he goes into different settings, different locations, different times, different places. But then he makes those different times and different places uniquely his own. And so we see, you know, whether it's a boarding school at Rushmore or whether it's a underwater explorer in a submarine and even how that underwater exploration is depicted, you know, vastly different fields and, and worlds and environments, but each world is a Wes Anderson world.
0: No, You know, I would actually second that the thing that I find most compelling about Wes Anderson is how he does have such a distinct style. Like you said, when you watch a Wes Anderson film, you know exactly what sort of trappings I, you know, in terms of like the way you, you know, you know how the characters are probably going to talk, you know, what kind of shots you're probably going to get, you know, kind of what score you're going to get. The thing that I find really compelling about him as a director though, is while all of that is true, I feel like his style is used uniquely per project. Like whenever he, Really deploys his style in Grand Budapest Hotel, for example, there's like three layers of storytelling going on there. And each one you layer deeper, you get the more like imaginary and more Wes Anderson it gets mm-hmm. uh, versus Moonrise Kingdom, where it's sort of uh, instead of like living in the, the realm of the imaginary, you're seeing it from the this is exactly what the world looks like from the perspective of children. Right. Yep. So. Yep. um it, it's it's like the same style but it means different things in different films and i i'm a lot right there with you and, and i, I want to see more i want to see him continue to sort of deploy his style on different films and different genres uh because i think there's just a lot a lot of really great stories that only he can tell in that way uh
1: that come out of it
0: out of curiosity what would you say is your favorite wes anderson film
1: favorite wes anderson film you know for a brief time it was Moonrise Kingdom. You know, the nostalgia of that, the sentimentality of that, um, it just, you know, it, it wins you over. But I would say, you know, as time has passed, I have basically resorted back to what might be considered a cliche choice of being essentially a toss up between Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. I mean, those are the two films that I find myself wanting to watch again the most from his filmography and the ones I want to keep returning to. Um, Yeah, Grand Budapest Hotel is also right there for me just because of how extravagant it is, visually speaking. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I have a lot of affection for as well. But in sort of the, you know, if I could only keep one Wes Anderson movie to take with me to a deserted island, it would have to be Rushmore, even over the Royal Tenenbaums.
0: All right, so going back to uh, the, the 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 films that made him a name, uh, so to speak, uh, you know, I'm I, I definitely respect the sort of the the earlier films. Uh, you know, Darjeeling Limited is another one that I really like, but I I I have to say Grand Budapest Hotel is one. You know, the one that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I've anytime, anytime it gets to my it comes to my attention like that it's streaming. <laughs> uh, I have a criterion copy of it on my shelf. Yep. I think yep. of it. I just say, well, let's just pop it in and watch it. You know, you know, like it, and I remember there was a while, um, back when I had HBO on cable several years ago and it was playing on HBO. Anytime I saw it on HBO, I would just watch it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what I think about quite a bit. So that's, that's probably my choice. I, I love the scope he's working with. I love again, the, the multi-layered storytelling and just how his styles deployed, um, I like the con- the driving conflict. Uh, there's a sort of a lot of underlying themes that he doesn't hit too heavily on. And It related to like uh, immigrants and, uh, but but I do think it's still there uh, mm-hmm. and really compelling. So that's that's when I go back to quite a bit. The other one is fantastic, Mr. Fox, though, um, and I just love that Wes Anderson is still committed to stop motion animation. Yes, uh, you know, I of Dogs wasn't my favorite, but it was still a solid movie, and the way he utilized, you know, th- that specific type of filmmaking uh and combining it with what you know some of the uh more unique like woodblock art we've seen from japan i just thought was Mm -hmm. really compelling overall so uh for that reason fantastic mr fox just is always going to be holding on there anytime i can support stop motion animated films uh, i'm gonna go there uh i well i do have to ask uh is there anything you Any sort of his uh, isms, so to speak, or uh, any of his uh, style choices that drive you a little crazy? Or are you here for all of it?
1: I'm here for all of it. You know, there there really isn't anything about his style that I hate or that rubs me the wrong way. Uh, If anything, you know, I've cherished how he's continued to indulge his aesthetic just more and more further and further. From the symmetry of everything and everything's exactly in its place to his fetishistic attention to detail, you know, all all of that increasing with each new film. And as kind of we talked about before, some say, you know, he's too self-indulgent, that he needs to dial himself back to temper his extremes. Or they even challenge him to do something different in terms of aesthetic. And I would just hate that. I would loathe that. You know, I will never be able to get enough of Wes just being Wes. And whatever degree he wants to be Wes, I want him to keep doing that. Now, all of that said, if I had to pick a favorite element within his style, whether it be cinematography, and what I mean by that specifically is framing and use of camera, Mm -hmm. um, or art direction, or music, or just the general dry comedic tone that's mixed with melancholy that's common to all of his films and certainly reflected in the performances... I had to kind of look at all those and pick which one of those elements of his films is my favorite, I would have to go with art direction. Mm-hmm. Just the worlds he creates are so singular and so imaginative. I mean, just endless in their Easter eggs. And, and as I was talking about before, yet he creates these completely different worlds in a singular style in these different times and places. So we can go anywhere at any time in any of his movies, um, it, so there's variety in that sense, but it's always going to be him and his ver- those parts of our world in those times through his lens. And the only thing I wish he would branch out and do is live theater. You know, I don't want him to change his aesthetic, but I would love to see him actually work in a live medium. You know, and we get hints of what that would look like from time to time, whether it be in a film like Rushmore or even in French Dispatch, we see some live theater at play and how he puts that together. And when I see stuff like that in his films, I want to see more of it. I would love to see a full length stage production of of Wes Anderson doing his thing.
0: Man, I think that'd be really great, whether it was like an original project or maybe he did like a one time run special on one of his favorite films and adapted it for the stage. I think that would be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you're right. We do see that in the French Dispatch as well. Anytime you have those big shots with the multiple levels, I always think like a stage, you know, where people can climb up ladders, but you can see everything all at the same time, Ah, man, it's good stuff. Now, mm-hmm. with that said, uh, listeners, we're going to move into just talk a little bit about the French Dispatch specifically. So, so, Jeff, you are a fan of all things Wes Anderson here. What did you think of the French Dispatch?
1: I loved that it was – well, first of all, it's an anthology. So there's – yeah, uh, well, there's technically four different stories, but there's three there's, – there's like a sort of an intro palette setter and then three kind of full stories. And – I loved that this anthology was entirely his a lot of times in movie history. When we've seen anthologies made, it's a bunch of different directors coming together and each one just, just does one short story. And so you kind of hop from one director to the next. And even if they have a similar aesthetic, um, you're still getting something different each time. And there's nothing wrong with that. And the fact that there's, there's virtue in doing that as well. But I love staying in the entire authorship of one director in this anthology. And I, I certainly kind of recalls back to the other recent film by the Coen brothers, the ballad of Buster Scruggs, same thing, anthology film, they're all from the same director. And, and so I love the aesthetic consistency, the tonal consistency and the emotional consistency that comes with all of that. And I think he's, not just telling three different short stories that he pulled off the shelf, but they're all sort of building and crescendoing uh, in in this uh, uh, in this emotional crescendo, certainly to the final piece. And so, uh, so just the fact that it's an anthology that's all singularly him and not a bunch, just him being one of a few directors putting an anthology together. I really appreciated that. Um, but beyond that, you know, coming out of Cannes this summer, where it premiered. It was described by many critics as being the most Wes Anderson movie ever, and you know some used that as a compliment. Others used it as a pejorative, and you know I'm certainly count me in the former. I think it's a huge compliment to say this is the most Wes Anderson movie ever. Although, if it is, it's not by much. I, I, you know, I, somebody could still make an argument that Grand Budapest is the most. Wes Anderson movie ever, just because of how dense it is. Um, But specifically, and certainly this was happening in Grand Budapest, another really specific thing I like here in French Dispatch is how he creatively uses the old Academy Standard Ratio, sort of that square framed 4-3 or the 1-3-3-1 ratio. And while he doesn't use that exclusively, he does use some widescreen on occasion, he does use that square frame for most of the film. And while that's, and it's not just some random artistic choice just to be different. He, what I like about his use of that square frame is he packs those frames even more than he might have otherwise with visual content. But because it's this square frame, instead of it feeling cramped um, because he's got less side-to-side to use, he uses depth spectacularly well, and that's something. And it, it, he certainly did that in Grand Budapest, but that stuck out to even even more to me here, since his left to right is limited. He uses that front to back uh, so intentionally, and so there's a lot of depth to these visuals, and and they're just as packed as they would be in a, in a wider frame, but just you know more front to back. And so I just I love how he sort of you know, boxed himself in quite literally, but then utilized those constraints in in the depth of the visual, and that brings its own sense of riches, and it's really gorgeous.
0: Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of great examples of that. The one that comes to mind is early in the film, there is uh, one of the, the the short stories in the anthology is covering Owen Wilson uh, as a cyclist, and uh, there's a scene where the the town, the city sort of Turn like uh, like awakens and it's it's quiet and all of a sudden the water turns on the people start opening up shops and everything but you're right you see several layers uh, back there's mm-hmm. the pipes the water uh, there's your storefronts then there's the second and third stories and there's, there's the houses behind them so yeah I think that's a uh, a really great note um, regarding the French dispatch and I'm glad to hear the anthology worked for you as uh, well I was a little less warm on it um, mm. overall. Uh, so here's what, so Jeff. Here's my thing with anthology films, is nine times out of ten, not a hundred percent of the time, but nine times out of ten, anthology. There's usually anywhere from fifty to seventy five percent of the stories that are great, and then the other twenty five are less interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I I found that to be the case here. Now that said, because as you pointed out, this is all Wes Anderson's sort of selection, his story, uh, the way this the, the film is structured uh, is similar to like a magazine. They go through this story here, and they're going to transition to this part of the paper, the magazine, and it's going to be this type of story. I liked the, the, the sort of like the, the setup, uh, the mm-hmm. structure. I just was lusk, and, and, and seen having seen the film twice now, I feel that not all of the stories are quite as strong as the others. And it might just be me, but I inevitably am always comparing whatever's an anthology. I end up comparing like certain chapters. I'm like, well, okay, this is the one I, I liked less. Um, so mm-hmm. I can't wait to get to the next one. Um, or the first time I was watching the film, I was like, okay, where are we going with this? And then we, the good, the good news is that the the final story uh, starring Jeffrey Wright, in my opinion, was the mo- by far the most compelling uh, and really made the film for me. So uh, that said, uh, I found the second one uh, starring Timothy Chalamet uh, and Francis McDormand to be uh, less compelling than, say, um, the like I said, the last one with Jeffrey Wright, uh, or even the the one in the middle with Benicio del Toro.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it's not uh, it doesn't ruin the movie. I still think overall, uh, The French Dispatch is a is a really uh, top tier film. It's still Wes Anderson. If you're a Wes Anderson fan, you're gonna love it. I would just say overall, I, I definitely there were times in the movie, especially the, the repeat viewing where I was sort of like, all right, when's the next thing about to happen? Because let's 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 get on to the next thing.
1: Well, uh, and, yeah. and that's where, you know, for just as a bit of a counterpoint, I, I, I really thought that he, for me, built one story after another very well. The order of them and what he was doing in them helped create this building experience that you that i would you know normally appreciate just about a singular story being told and while each story is different so you know for example so you get after you set the world of this french dispatch and bill murray's character being the editor of that and the publisher and setting that world then you've got this sort of short intro story called the cycling reporter that Owen Wilson is is telling and he's giving basically a tour of the city of Ennui that the French Dispatch is in. And it's, it's the shortest story. It's brief. And like, like I said before, it's a palette setter. And so it's just fun. And it, it brings you into the world. And then that first full story, the concrete masterpiece starring Benicio Del Toro, I just thought it was this, uh, the comedy of the piece is superb. And particularly, there's some great physical comedy. Within this piece, even though, you know, there's interesting things going on with the characters and certainly the story, just as a a, as a piece of physical comedy, some real inspired staging, some live freeze frames, just just visually, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And then he's but he's also using that to sort of poke holes and make fun of artistic pretense, which is another thing I love broadly. About Wes Anderson, he simultaneously sort of basks in artistic pretension just by the nature of his work. But then his work also is always constantly, even in subtle ways or in or in satirical ways, making fun of artistic pretension and artistically pretentious people. And so that's what the concrete masterpiece is about. Then similarly, with revisions to a manifesto with Timothy Chalamet, instead of you know, poking holes at artistic pretense, he starts to take, poke holes at philosophical and political pretense, uh, because it's about the writing of this manifesto and, and how, in one sense, he genuinely, you, can, you get a sense that Wes Anderson loves these youthful socialistic ideals, you know, that are meant to champion the people. And yet he also recognizes the totalitarian impulses that often come from those ideals. And so I just found that to be interesting where, so the first main story, he's poking fun at uh, artistic pretense. The second one, philosophical and political pretense, while also still having a genuine affection for those things. But then to your point, it really comes together in a poignant way in that final piece, The Private Dining Room of the Police Commissioner. And not only does it come together in a poignant way, uh, because we're still exploring artistic pretension to some degree, because it's about this you know great chef who happened to be a cook for uh, the police. Um, but Jeffrey Wright's character in particular, I mean, just as an acting showcase, it's, it's just a great piece for Jeffrey Wright. And even though he's sort of the lead of this one story, I, ha- I have my fingers crossed that somehow he gets some traction for Best Supporting Actor, because, I mean, the guy... I mean, he, he's always deserving of a showcase, and I would love to see him get some awards recognition, and I just think he really shines here. It's clearly written for him. And then his character of Roebuck, who is the writer of this story, and he's the storyteller of this story, um, what Anderson said, he's sort of this inspired amalgam of James Baldwin, the you know I- iconic uh, civil rights writer and thinker, as well as mixed with one of the most famed journalists of The New Yorker, A.J. Liebling. And, and I think it's within that, that we, within his character, we really get a sense of the affection and sort of the romance of magazines like the New Yorker that Wes Anderson has and has for that sort of uh, expression, that literary expression. And, and it just all comes together artistically and emotionally and with sentiment. And it just, I think all those other pieces in a fun way, build toward this emotionally resonant final chapter with Jeffrey Wright.
0: Yeah, I, I I do agree that they sort of build off of one of uh, one another, which is which is helpful. And I, I wholeheartedly uh, second the, the motion to give Jeffrey Wright uh, <laughs> an award because he's spectacular. And, you know, I, I think listen, people on the Internet have been saying this for years. Uh, his voice is excellent. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like this just having him narrate a picture like a film um, at this at this level, I, I think really just sets him up to be sort of the next Morgan Freeman or uh, mm, yeah. not Morgan Freeman, of course. But he's just got uh, I want to listen to all the audio books narrated by Jeffrey
1: Wright's what I'm saying. So. Well, and he carries that gravitas, but in a very natural way. It's not forced at all, you know, but there's a richness there and there's a you just you hear a depth. There a depth of humanity. So it's, it's not just the great vocal quality, but there's something behind it, like with Morgan Freeman, where there's a lot of life lived and experienced within that voice.
0: Most definitely. And also, you know, this is, I would say, uh, clearly the climactic chapter. I mean, there's the most action. We won't spoil it, but Wes Anderson definitely shakes up his form quite a bit for this one, uh, which we'll discuss a little more in spoilers. But I, overall, this was the most compelling piece for me. And, uh, you know, the, the, in a classic Wes Anderson form, the, again, he... He's uh, like, like you say, he's both basking in sort of like the the artistic expression while also critiquing it. But, mm-hmm. as, you know, as the story wraps up, he basically says via one of the characters, well, this is the whole point of the story uh, in a lot of ways. So, uh, again, uh, overall, though, I, I found it to be uh, a really strong outing for Wes Anderson. You know, I'm going to rewatch it probably Uh, many times in the future. Uh, So again, we're going to get more into depth uh, in, in some of the themes here and spoilers, Jeff, but um, I guess, uh, I guess I should uh, just go ahead and uh, leave the question before we move into giving it a letter grade. Was that, was that final vignette? Was that your favorite as well?
1: It was definitely, It, it really felt like the payoff to, to some, I did in hindsight, I realized it was building towards that. I didn't, I wasn't thinking that as it was going, but it, it felt like such an emotional and thematic payoff and even you know, visually creative payoff. Just everything about it was so satisfying. And the fact that it came at the end as opposed to having that experience up front and then the other two not living up to it. Um, yeah, it just it really it landed the whole thing.
0: Excellent. Yes. And uh, again, yeah, my, my favorite was the the third vignette as well. Uh, the one last thing I'd like to say in the, the spoiler free section here about this is this movie does a really great job at showcasing the journalists mm-hmm. and what they do to get the story. And each of the journalists has their own approach to getting the story. Uh, some of them, one of them, it's more of a case study uh, whereas another, it's more of a transactional investment uh, in, in uh, the characters in the story. Uh, and then, uh, as we see with Jeffrey Wright, sort of the circumstances are thrust upon him. Um, so I, I found that also intriguing, that each one of the journalists had their own style they uh, and their own level of commitment to what they were trying to tell. And also loved how Bill Murray, in a classic publication, was this very defensive, protective editor who mm-hmm. wasn't afraid to... You know, call out his staff when they weren't uh, hitting the mark, but also was fiercely protective of them and supportive of them as well. So, uh, anyway, just want to give that last nod. I think that's uh, something the film does very well: uh, is you know, uh, writing a, a love letter by showcasing people telling the stories. So, Jeff, uh, let's go ahead and bring this uh, spoiler-free review home. What letter grade would you give? The, the French dispatch. Well,
1: I am such a Homer for Wes Anderson that I'm always tempted to just give it some grading of a, but if I have to really, again, I, need, I do feel a responsibility to take a step back and sort of grade some of these on a curve. And so within the whole filmography, I would maybe give it a B plus not maybe. Yeah, for sure. So, so there's a couple, there's uh, a handful of his films or maybe, you know, three or four, that are in that A territory if I'm just grading Wes Anderson films. But right below that, I would put French Dispatch.
0: Excellent. I think B-plus is a very fair grade. I'm going to go on the other end of the spectrum myself and say B-minus. Again, I also fully expect to, in five years, uh, rewatch this film like two or three more times and do a total 180 uh, because I have found that Wes Anderson films are very rewarding on repeat viewing. And oftentimes I'm sort of like realigning the order uh, mm-hmm. that I enjoy them in myself. Uh, but I'd say B minus just because again, I found, I found the pacing to be good, not great. And mostly because there was one of the stories I was less invested in. Uh, that said, you really do need that story for the whole picture to work. The whole thing he's sort of trying to get at to work. Um, so overall, I think it's a, it's, it's definitely a winner more than it's not. So I'm going to go with B minus. Uh, so, listeners, I'd say check it out. Uh, if it if, if it is playing in a theater near you, uh, and you feel safe going into the theater, I do encourage you to check it out. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, it'll be VOD. Uh, the the release The window between theatrical and VOD is not so long uh, much these days. And if you are saying, should I pay twenty dollars to rent it? I'd say if you even, you can get a friend to chip in. Absolutely, check it out. Now, Jeff, uh, last thing I want to leave listeners with, uh, for those people who do enjoy the French French dish, excuse me, for those listeners who do enjoy the French dispatch, or maybe they're looking for something that they, they can sort of compare it to what is another, whether it's a, a movie, a television show, novel music, or some other of media recommendation that you would give listeners today if they enjoy or would like to see the French dispatch.
1: Well, you know, as we've discussed, Wes Anderson films are so singular. In one sense, it's hard to find comparisons. Uh, it's it's hard to find. How do I? Wh- what does this match well with? Um, you know, I, I guess you could start listing any in terms of music, just anything that sounds like his soundtracks. You know, uh, '60s and '70s types of songs um, or just whimsical sort of orchestrations. But to get specific, I really come back to films. And I'll do kind of two different examples. The first being just the films of Sofia Coppola. I feel like Sofia Coppola and Wes Anderson are really cinematic siblings. I think e- even though her you know, aesthetic isn't certainly as dense and even sort of overkill as Wes Anderson's is, their melancholy is very much in tune with each other. And I think that's why, for example... Bill Murray so easily finds a home in both of their filmographies. And so I just think they've got, there's kindred spirits working on sort of similar, but yet own unique aesthetic planes. And I think, you know, if you can, it's it's sort of like, you know, how people pair a wine with a certain food. Uh, These, you know, these are two different things that go well together, even though they bring some different tastes and they complement each other. And so, like, an Anderson-Sophia Coppola double feature would always be a great way to spend an afternoon or an evening. And then uh, the other specific reference, also film, is to really dive into the French New Wave of the 1960s. Uh, Truffaut, Godard, but uh, most especially Jacques Demy. And specifically, even more specifically, Demy's films, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, or The Young Girls of Rochefort. In fact, fact, that second one, The The Young Girls of Rochefort, I mean, that looks like a Wes Anderson movie. You watch it, and you're just like, "Oh my goodness!" I mean, this is this is what Wes Anderson is up to. This is what uh, Anderson's trying to emulate. But that he's also taking it to another level. So the films of Jacques Demy and Cherbourg and Rochefort, those two specifically, are definitely uh, ones that if if Wes Anderson films have not uh, was, if Wes Anderson fans have not seen either of those films, check them out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Anything French New Wave listeners, uh, I found myself enlightened anytime I get get around to checking out um, uh, the works from that really, uh, really powerful era of filmmaking. Um, I am going to go a different direction with this, Jeff. I'm going to focus on other films that celebrate journalism. So Mm. of course, uh, All the President's Men is a really, really big one. Um, I think that just in a lot of ways, again, showcases the job. And there's a lot of Uh, noise out there and opinions of a lot of people out there about the role of journalists in society going on right now. But I think if you remove all of that, I I love the films that really hone in on the process. What is it like to be a journalist the day to day? What happens when you, you stumble on a big story? You know, it's not like you just put it out into the world, Like there's historically uh, a lot of work approvals you know, ethical questions that are debated about whether or not these big stories get told. So I, I love all the presidents, man, because it really hones in on the, the process and the people that are trying to get the the truth out there. Uh, the next one I'd, I'd recommend is also spotlight. Similarly has a stellar cast, uh, won the Oscar. Was it 2015, 2014 mm-hmm. correct, uh, is really one of my favorite films of the last decade. And again, it is about the process. It's the process and the people behind it and sort of what is what is it like to have a, you know, bombshell, so to speak, story and what what all is it entail to get that published. Uh, and again, the the answer for those of you who aren't as familiar with journalism, it's it's not that it's not that simple. Uh, and I don't know. I just have a thing for watching uh, comp- very competent people be very good at their jobs. I think someone someone online that uh, called it competence porn recently. And I was like, you know, there's something to that. Heist movies. Ocean's Eleven. Why do you like it? Because those guys are really good at their jobs. Yeah. The um, so I want to uh, just give a shout out to those two films, All the Presence Men and Spotlight. Uh, In particular, but the list goes on. There's a lot of uh, tremendous stories out there about journalism and journalists doing work. And I do think uh, that the French dispatch, given the fact that it's from Wes Anderson, who has such a distinct style, I think there's a chance this could wind up in that pantheon as well. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Oscar season's not too far off. All right. Well, listeners, you have our recommendations. You have some additional homework to check out. Uh, For those of you who haven't seen The French Dispatch, go ahead and tune out now. And for those of you who want to, who have seen it and want to further discussion, hang tight. We'll be right back. What happened in the end? In the end, they shot him. So it all went to me. All right, Jeff. So let's go ahead and dive into a more spoiler filled discussion here. Uh, So I've highlighted a few different topics uh, and as much as we can get to uh, in the next uh, 20 or so minutes, I want to discuss some themes here and just a segue right on through my alternate media recommendation. Uh, I want to start with uh, a tribute to newspapers and journalism. So I just want to get your perspective here. I mean, this film has been touted as, quote unquote, an ode to journalism, uh, a celebration of all the things that goes into newspapers. Uh, So from your perspective, in what ways does Anderson really honor the story of journalists in this film?
1: Well, you know, it's a very specific form of journalism. So this, you know, the French dispatch is really an ode to the New Yorker magazine, And its place in journalism, its iconic place in journalism, and that place has a lot more to do with long-form journalism uh, and really diving deep into stories, not just capturing the facts, but capturing the essence, you know, at, at a storytelling level, not just a reportage level. And so the French Dispatch is really an ode to that specific form of journalism. And then to sort of take that a step further, what I really appreciated about the French Dispatch is that it's a romantic ode to that form of journalism, a tribute not only to a lost style or a style that's becoming lost as time goes on, but more importantly, a lost ethos. And you were kind of hitting on this when you were talking about Bill Murray's editor character uh, a little bit earlier, that ethos that in one sense is both very rigorous in terms of its professionalism. But yet, particularly in this New Yorker style of journalism, this storytelling, it's also an ode to how these journalists took beautiful poetic licenses in the telling of that story, Uh, not to such an extreme that it made the stories false, but it brought them alive in a way that only storytelling can. And so there is this professional rigor, but this beautiful poetry being combined into the, the form of journalism. So you see those virtues at play. You see them being honored here, certainly from, you know, on the rigor side, Bill Murray's editor and publisher of the French Dispatch. Um, and, and you were talking about this as well, about his about that editor. He's, he, he's not only keeping these writers on task and challenging them to, to various degrees, um, and so he's reining them in a little bit, But he's also giving them free reign because ultimately what he's going, whether he's giving them free reign or trying to rein them in in certain ways, his goal in doing both of those things is he wants to hear their voices. He wants to publish their voices. And those voices are the voices of reporters and storytellers. And so that's really, I think, what Wes Anderson is paying tribute to and is really in love with
0: right and again the, the 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 idea that the story finds the the journalist going back to uh you know the the private dining room of the police commissioner uh, that was supposed to be uh, a story about a meal essentially in mm-hmm. a chef uh turned into this whole uh the kidnapping of the son uh this <laughs> huge you know sort of swashbuckling adventure that got highly animated uh by the mm-hmm. way now I'm about spoilers i just have to say uh that was that sequence at the end uh you know, sort of the chase sequence being animated. It's mm-hmm. one of the most delightful things I think I've seen in a while. Um, yep. in particular how they they did the the whole thing where they all jumped off and on foot ran around the whole bridge and the building and whatnot and then jumped back <laughs> in the car. I, I still second time I saw it I, I lost it the second time. So mm-hmm. um, but no I like that it it is really again like you say it, it's it's following the story and the the voices of the writers uh, letting them sort of run with the stories as they see fit. And I think each the aesthetic for each of those t- different stories by the different authors. So, uh, whether it's the cycling reporter, uh, you know, with Owen Wilson, you get the concrete masterpiece, which is following, uh, that, uh, Benis del Toro character or the visions of a manifesto. Each one of them has like their own angle and, and sort of voice to them. Um, that I think is just really compelling overall. And like you said, in your review comes together in a complete package, much like uh, a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really like the scene at the beginning when Bill Murray is sort of sitting, looking at his board, trying to figure out where to place, you know, everything he's got. I, I think it really highlights, again, this is more of an art form, uh, I would say, than than a, a normal publication. What, I, I'm curious, what do you make of it uh, that uh, Bill Murray's editor character basically position, positions himself as the newspaper, as in when he dies – they shut it down. You know, everyone's well paid job well done. Uh, the obituary will be in his in the final issue. I, I don't know. What'd you make of that? I was kind of curious. It's been something that stuck with me, especially the second time.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I you know, I don't know if this is what Wes meant in terms of how he wrote the character that way to compel him to shut it all down in that sense. But it just makes me think that's just how much ownership uh Arthur Howitzer is Bill Murray's character's name. That's how much Howitzer took ownership of this piece. Ultimately, even though he is, you know, using a lot of different writers and cartoonists and journalists in these publications, ultimately it's it's his artistic expression, right? And so he's he's the author in, in, a, in a in a in a maximum sense. And now he's using other authors and other author voices to help create that and to form that. But I think it's just, it's an expression of the ownership that he took. And, uh, uh and, and in that way, there's a beauty to that.
0: Yeah, most definitely. Um uh, well, I think with that said, let's go ahead and move on to the, the second topic here. And this one is the one I'm, I'm really excited to get your take on. Uh, which is really just, you know, the use of Wes Anderson's visual storytelling uh, and also the theme of nostalgia, which both of these are elements that I feel like are pretty consistent across his, his oeuvre. Uh, Of course, a common theme, like I said, here uh, in Anderson's film is the nostalgia piece and a fondness for the past. How do you think Anderson explores nostalgia in this film, both visually and in the script?
1: Well, in terms of the script, The the one thing that really sticks out to me is the conversations. Um, It's not, yes, we do see the depiction of how this comes together and how Bill Murray's editor, you know, works with these reporters, but it's the conversations they have. And so his fondness for this form of journalism, we see it being worked out between that editor and those writers and so the conversations they have about debating what should go in there and what what should be changed or adapted or um that's where i feel the fondness really uh, becomes expressed as well as then just anderson really finding essentially three different voices within each of those stories so it's not just a single voice But there's, you know, there's a definite voice to each of those three, even though it's all told within Wes Anderson's style, um, which, again, as we talked about before, is most effective in Jeffrey Wright's character's voice. So I I just think it's in the conversations, it's in the exchanges that we really get the strong sense of what it means, um, because when we get a sense of what it means to these characters through their conversations— both the stories they're trying to tell, but how they do it and how they feel compelled to do it and, and where they differ on that. Um, That's, it's just beautifully done. Um, And then visually, you know, you know, I would really, I would really have to see it again and really think about it to, to really be able to give a straight answer just because there's so much going on in this film visually. And, That's saying something when we're talking about Wes Anderson, because that's a common characteristic, obviously, to all of his films. But, you know, to that comment where a lot of critics have said, this is the most Wes Anderson film, there's so much going on. So like, I don't know about you, but when I'm watching a film for the first time that I know I'm going to write a review for, I take notes and watching this movie, it was I didn't. Want just? I didn't want to glance down to scribble my note for fear of just a frame that I might miss because there's so much going on visually. Um, it was just it was that sort of an intense level of Wes Anderson aesthetic, and I didn't want to I didn't want to miss a moment because I was afraid I was going to miss something, and I you know and, and you would. So uh, just in that broad sense, visually, I, you know how it reflects uh, uh, sort of the fondness and the nostalgia of the past. Certainly, just the time setting itself, I think, reflects that. The fact that we're going back to early and mid-20th century and working within that general time frame, um, that's uh, as opposed to modern day. Uh, that right there, he's, he, he's just going back to a fondness of a time, but then even more specifically, a place. And the fact that he's still got it connected to uh, Bill Murray's character has his roots in Kansas. And so this idea, the whole, I, the reason that this publisher uh, was in France running the French dispatch was to send those stories back to Kansas. Um, And so even there, I think that reflects something how the, the, the fondness that Wes Anderson has for this kind of journalism is how it opens up the world to its readers and it's not just giving them information or making them aware of events but it's it's broadening their minds it's broadening how they see the world and how they experience the world and so even just that little contextual aspect of you know this dispatches to get these reports not just to fellow french people but to back into america and the middle america i thought was very fascinating
0: yeah most definitely and i would just say like for i think you nailed it with the script the the conversations the way uh, the, the relationships that you have between the writers and the editors, uh, all of that I think checks out. The one thing I'd add on the visual side, uh, which of course is large parts of this movie are in black and white. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about the color mm, yeah. in a minute, but mm-hmm. I want to know because I, th- I think he is certainly trying to evoke a, a time of, um, a time long gone whenever it's in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also the other thing he does uh, later in the film, uh, specifically in the last act is the use of animation. That is very much a uh, sort of a, a nod and tribute to, you know, the sort of covers you would get from the New Yorker, uh, mm-hmm. but like in a fully animated form, uh, which I just found to be really compelling. I want to see full length features or at least like uh, some more YouTube shorts the, using the same uh, art style there. Um, but again, everything there's such a level of care that is put into and thought that's put into all of those different aspects uh, that I really do think it kind of creates this sort of like, wouldn't it be cool if we all just lived in this time period? You know, even even you know the third the third, uh, the, the third story or sorry the final story uh, where there's you know kids getting kidnapped, shootouts <laughs> happening that one of the funniest shots in the whole movie is when the police break into the the compound and they all have guns pointing everywhere, uh-huh. and, you know, w- which I'm not a gun guy, but I just found it hilarious. just the kind of comedic aesthetic of like everyone looking for the people in every corner, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just it, it's, wouldn't that this be fun if this was kind of how the world we all lived in, uh, it sort of kind of created that, like you said, that romantic edge to the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, it was so much better. Or, Oh, the, was lighter and sweeter you know i just think he kind of creates that imaginary realism um really really well uh so let's move on to talk about the color a little bit because this was probably the the thing i'm still up to this moment still trying to 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 figure out where what anderson is trying to get at so i wanted to see if you had any perspective Uh, so there are scenes that are in color in this film outside of the animated uh sequences i should note and one I think Anderson does a really great job at just sneaking them in. Like, it's pretty seamless. He'll just incorporate a, a shot that's in color, and then all of a sudden be back in black and white. Uh, whereas it's frequently used to sort of make a statement or be a lot more pointed in the use of black and white to color, black and white to color. Whereas this is very subtle. Like, you know, if, you, mm-hmm. if you're really in it, you might not even notice it, I would, I would argue. So what did you make of his use of color in this film?
1: Well, I, certainly very specific and motivated. So like you said, by and large, it's a black and white palette. And I I agree. I think it's a, 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 generally speaking, that's a nod to just old journalism. It was in black and white, right? Um, But what I found more interesting as I began to see the moments that he would use flashes of color, I really began to think that what Anderson was doing was this. It was when he used color. It was his way of crossing that threshold between story and reality. And so when we're in black and white, we're being told the story. But when the flashes of color come in, we're basically crossing that fourth wall to experience the actual reality as those people experienced it. So those moments of color aren't us being told the story or learning it. But we're experiencing how those people experienced it. I mean, you could almost say that the use of color um, uh, was the the film's version of being there. If the black and white was the reporting, then it was as if, oh, this is uh, we're finally capturing what it was to be for that what it was like for that reporter to be there. And so that's that's what I think he was using the color for was to say, this isn't just a story being told, but this is something that was that happened and that was experienced. And it's the most real, um, even if it's just emotionally real, um, it's those moments. that He uses color to take us there.
0: Right now, I think that's a, a great, a, a great read on it. And, and because I, I should point out, it's not only the color, even the the way the shots are framed are a little differently, the one that sticks out to me. Uh, is when, uh, I believe it's Saoirse Ronan, I think, uh, as one of the, the prostitutes or showgirls, I should say. Um, the, the boy says something about the color of her eyes. She says, uh, she has ask if her eyes are really blue or something like that. And it cuts to a POV shot of the, the little boy in the closet and you can see her eyes. Mm-hmm. There's no other shot like that in the rest of the movie. There's mm-hmm. no other POV shot where he's using depth and color in that way. And I, I found that was the, the sort of the, the one I was really, it really stuck out to me, but you're right. That is uh, the audience in that moment, living in that moment versus sort of, like you said, crashing that threshold from the sort of imagined uh, sort of romanticized version of the reporting to the quote unquote real world. I, mm-hmm. I yeah, that's a great read.
1: Um, well, and even, I, I, I don't know if this is universal to every shot of color, but quite often uh when he used color, he would also go from the square frame to the widescreen frame. Yeah. So in in that sense, he was almost, he was also opening the world. In, just in terms of the frame as well as the color. And so that just uh, emphasized even more, Oh, this isn't just the story we're being told just for this brief moment. We're experiencing it like these people that were being told about how they experienced it and how they felt. And I, that shot of, Sir eyes I think is a perfect example of that right
0: all right well that's a great read so uh of course listeners uh I don't know that's I that was I, I saw a lot of people online uh talking about that exact thing so uh, I think it's a great read and, and honestly that's what's uh beautiful beautiful about sort of how ambiguous he leaves that uh when I go back and watch the film again I'll have a new lens to check it out um and it'll mean something a little different so that's pretty exciting there uh, let's, okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about, I, I just wanted to quickly touch on the animated sequences. Uh, I've already sort of shared my love and affection for those. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeff, what did you make of these?
1: Well, you know, um, you know, maybe in the strictest sense, they're a stylistic gimmick, but I don't necessarily think that that makes them bad or superfluous. Uh, because I think specifically the, the, the reason that they're there is because again, referring back to The New Yorker, which is really the inspiration for The French Dispatch, I mean, it had, you know, it didn't just have essays and and feature stories and reporting. It had cartoons as well and and does have cartoons. And so these animated sequences are essentially a representation of that aspect of the publication, of of the fact that cartoons are a regular part of this sort of magazine. Um, But I also think To go back to this conversation we just had about the use of color, if the use of color was taking us from the reporting to the reality of these moments, I think the use of the animation is the other opposite extreme of that. So if color represented the most real and true moments of these stories, then the animation could be seen as the most fantastical licenses and the most fantastical flourishes that these reporters took when telling their stories. Um, and as you were describing earlier about that whole, you know, chase sequence, I mean, that's a great example of that is, is you get a sense that, okay, it probably didn't really happen this way. But, it, you know, the license is the, the most or the biggest licenses are being taken in those animated sequences. And so I think that's a very intentional as well.
0: Yeah, great nod. I, I'm sure the strong man landed on his feet exactly. Right, exactly, <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, uh,
0: let's go ahead and move on to our final topic here today, uh, and it's a, a nod to to immigrants. So, uh, a key moment in the the final vignette, the private dining room of the police commissioner, reveals that the chef uh, tasted something that he would never tasted before. Uh, to which uh, Jeffrey Wright, the character Roebuck Wright, uh, again, I like the inspiration there. They both have the same last name. Uh, so Roebuck Wright responds by posing sort of a, a question. This is not verbatim. I failed to, to get the verbatim uh, response in my second viewing. But perhaps uh, the, the gist is perhaps we can find the thing that we longed for in our home elsewhere. And then Howitzer responds by saying, well, this is the reason for the whole – the reason the story was written, you have to include it in the story. Uh, to which you know, Roebuck Wright disagrees, but then includes it in the story. So, I, uh, Jeff, I want to turn it to you because uh, the, sort of, there's been a lot of nods uh, to immigrants and immigrants' stories throughout uh, Anderson's uh, body of work, even if it's it's not usually front and center quite, uh, quite. But th- I did find this inclusion interesting. So, what was your take?
1: Well, you know, I don't know if I have. A take per se on the specificity of immigrants. But here is what those things make me think of those lines that you were quoting specifically. Here's what it comes to my mind Wes Anderson is a native Texan. And if his films were your only reference for him, the last place you would probably guess that Wes Anderson hails from is Texas. Nothing about his movies, say Texas, right? His sensibilities are clearly, you know, boldly, excessively European. So when Anderson writes a sentiment like the ones you just quoted, like the chef's saying, tasted something he'd never tasted before, or the other one you noted, perhaps we can find the thing we longed for in our home elsewhere. I think Anderson is talking about himself ultimately, about his own experience. Of And certainly films do that for us, and certainly traveling does that for us, but for him, it was probably in literature first, and maybe even reporting and storytelling first. And so when we think about this in the context of immigrants, um, this isn't a dogmatic statement by Anderson. He's not trying to say something directly. I think it's a personal one. I I think it's a testimonial for him. And it comes from a place of gratitude of what other places, other people, other cultures have brought to him. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, in one sense, he delves into all that, you know, some people would say in a, a very pretentious way, but he's also, you know, uh, taking pot shots at that pretense. And there's um, and, and so within all this pretense, there's still this remnant. Of him being a Texan at his core. And so, even though he's very European in his style and he found this home in other cultures where, you know, that he longed for, he found it elsewhere outside of Texas. I still think when he's taking pot shots at some of the pretense that is very identif- identifiable as European, I think that's still the remnant of his Texan inside of him, sort of this humility that he grew up with that people shouldn't get too big for their own britches or whatever, you know? And so, um, so he's, he's ultimately grateful that he, he was looking for a home as a Texan, but there's still some of that Texan left in him and it comes in how he tells his stories. And so all of that is sort of what I think of when I see those statements that you really honed in on.
0: Well, and I think just to sort of echo that point, the idea that the stories told in these magazines could really help the readers sort of fulfill that growth. You you, you know what I mean? Maybe, maybe the readers, like you said, uh, this is a a magazine that that they are writing in in France so that they can send it back to Kansas. Mm -hmm. So, so so maybe in a lot of ways, that's uh, the, the, you know, him saying via the film uh, uh, as well. Hey, like these, these stories, hopefully you're finding something in them that you're lacking in your everyday life. Or, or maybe it sort of helps change your perspective in much the same way that film can do, uh, as you pointed out as well. Um, I like that read quite a bit. And uh, again, it's one of those he he. I like the really highly personalized touch that you brought to, to the table because I really feel like when it, he's frequently sort of like nodding to, to immigrants uh, in his films without going too in depth. But I hadn't even considered it because he is a, a man who certainly doesn't fit the profile of a Texan. Uh, for sure. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, and even just, you know, to, to really hone in on that idea of what is this saying about immigrants, you know, as as you're talking and the more I think about it, I mean, that's ultimately what stories do, right? They connect us, or part of what their power can be is connecting us with people that we've never met before, that we don't know. And it's that first, uh, almost more inviting way to get to know them for the first time and to start breaking down prejudices and start showing us, oh, they're more like me than I realized by just you know, hearing this story and, and, and seeing these people and their experiences. Yeah, I'm sort of like them too. And it, you know those stories are sort of that, that easier way for us to ease into the breaking down of prejudices and breaking down those barriers that otherwise might separate us.
0: Absolutely. And it brings us uh, to put a pin in the conversation brings me to the, my, one of my favorite Roger Ebert quotes talking about film as a machine that generate empathy so that we can learn more about the people that we're walking through life with. Uh, so anyway, anytime I can bring it back to, to Roger Ebert, I, I feel like there is that sort of uh, loose connection there. Uh, the powers of stories to help us empathize, to learn, to grow uh, and to ultimately become uh, hopefully uh have some humility to our, our fellow man. So uh, yeah, all of that packed into one little moment of a of Wes of Wes Anderson movie, but I'm glad we met, we, we we dove into that because the movie does call out, uh, you know, via Bill Murray's editor, this is the reason the story was written. You know, mm-hmm. I, I really felt like he was sort of signaling to the audience at that point. This is kind of the point. <laughs> mm-hmm. If not, if not for that final, just that final vignette, the whole film. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to dive into that uh, for listeners. Uh, well, Jeff, uh, I think we are about out of time, but I did want to leave you with an opportunity. Is there anything else you would like to say about the French dispatch before we close out today's show?
1: Uh, two things. One, Tilda Swinton. She's the storyteller of the first story and her character is so uniquely bizarre and is in itself this embodiment of both satirizing and having affection for, people in the realm of artistic pretense and high society um, and just her take on that character is comically brilliant. Um, But then uh, more uh, deeply, uh, I came across just yesterday, um, there was a tweet by Richard Brody. And Richard Brody is the film critic for The New Yorker since 1999, so a little over 20 years, an author of books like uh, Everything is Cinema, The Working Life of Jean-Luc Godard. So when you're talking about film critic for The New Yorker, writing a cinema book about Jean-Luc Godard, I mean, this is somebody who can really speak well to Wes Anderson. And uh, so in this tweet, and it's just like a a three-tweet thread I want to read, because for me he really starts to hit at what is really effective about Wes Anderson and what some people and what his critics often get wrong about him. Um, So anyway, I'll, I'll read it here. He says, Wes Anderson's films baffle many otherwise astute critics because they're inescapably essentially for interpretation. Despite the sensory and narrative overload, nothing is literal or realistic. Everything is symbolic and demands imaginative sympathy to get anything at all from it. The films can't be consumed or watched on one's own terms. Substance and style can't be separated. I, I really love that little bit right there. Substance and style can't be separated. One of uh, you know the knee-jerk critiques of Wes Anderson is that he's style over substance. Um, you know, I you know I can think of people like for example, I read somebody writing about how. They didn't like Grand Budapest Hotel because they thought it was just this whole fascination with production design, and it didn't have uh, the emotional depth of Moonrise Kingdom. And what Brody's saying here basically is, you can't separate those two. And so, you know, to the degree that Wes Anderson is excessively stylistic, he's all he's doing it all for a purpose, and you can't dismiss it alone uh, uh, as just as just style over substance, they're all integrated. And so uh, he basically ends his uh, tweeting by saying, um, uh, instead of just passing these things off as empty, um, we have to figure out what they embody and why do they take that form? And that's how you really start to engage a, a, a filmmaker like Wes Anderson. Why is he this way? And it, it, I do believe it's something more and there's something richer and deeper than just the fact that he has a fascination with detail and symmetry. And he's more fascinated than just wanting to, you know, have his little dioramas and, and treat actors like figurines and, and all that sort of thing. It's, he's still getting at emotions and sentiments and ideals that are very meaningful to him. And just because you know and, and there's sort of this weird contrast where his visual style is so rich, but then his tone is so dry and but then, how that comes to and I think it's those two things, the richness of the visual experience and the dryness of his tone and his and that's what creates melancholy, and that's all and he's this melancholy spirit, and his characters have this melancholy spirit, and all of that comes together you know, from the visual to the tonal to create that unique experience. And that's why, quite honestly, I'm honestly moved by each of his films in various ways. I I don't find them cold and distant and just artifice like a lot of people do. Uh, I I connect with them emotionally because I really feel like there's emotional investment in every aspect of his filmmaking.
0: Absolutely. I I mean, I I actually feel like his films are deeply emotional. uh, Sometimes by... Saying less, you're saying more, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of it goes back to what I mentioned at the top of my review. He has a very distinct style that maybe not everyone likes, but I, I do think the way in which he deploys it differently in each story, the way he frames it via certain character povs, is really, really, really where the meaning uh, and and like the emotion is at. Because you have to stop and think, I'm watching or reading the story from this character's point of view. Why are they thinking about it? This, why is the world look this way to that, those characters? What does that mean to them? And I just think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot there um, on Ayrton Film. And I think he's very clever and, and specific on what stories he chooses to tell using that style. So uh, mm-hmm. well said, Jeff.
1: Yeah, and you get so wrapped up in the whimsy that then as a director, he'll take you to these points where, oh, the whimsy stops. And now we're having basically a real moment. Uh, with these characters and that happens in each of his films. And, um, and so he's, he's using all of that artifice to, in one sense, entertain you, but also distract you. But then that, when he brings the reality of those emotions and those ideas in, he really knows how to drop them in again, in this melancholy way that makes them resonant.
0: Awesome. Well, well said, Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that will be our full review of the French dispatch, uh, Jeff, uh, we're going to close out the show here, but for listeners who enjoyed hearing your, your analysis and your review of the French dispatch, where can they keep up with you and your work online?
1: Yeah. So, uh, my website is, I can't unsee that movie.com. again, it's, I can't unsee that movie.com. And then my Twitter handle is at can't unsee movie.
0: Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, and of course, you want to keep up with uh, all the things at the Cinematropolis. As I noted earlier, you can head over and catch us on Twitter at The Cinematrop or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis. Uh, you can also find me tweeting about all sorts of things related to film, television, and video games over at, on Twitter at C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. Thanks so much to everyone for tuning in today. We'll catch you again next time.